Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And earlier this week, that uh, today's text could very easily be four separate sermons. So I've got about two hours worth of material as you look at the watch. But there is so much wisdom in in this book that I don't want to go too deep into any of the passages. You know, as preachers, we often struggle with how to know when to go deep and when to go wide. And uh, my prayer is that while I know I am preaching texts that you have heard before, many of you read each year in your Through the Bible uh, reading plan. I hope to provide at least some new insight into a text that may seem quite familiar. You may recall that I told you back in 
Uh, chapters 9 through 19 is a training section for disciples. Jesus is leading his disciples towards Jerusalem where he knows he is going to offer himself as the atonement for our sin. And on this journey, um, Jesus encounters the public and the disciples get an opportunity to watch how Jesus interacts with both the seekers and the skeptics. But between these public interactions, Jesus gives snippets of information that the disciples will need to absorb if they are going to carry on the mission after the resurrection and the ascension. And today we have four of these snippets of things that we need to know if we are going to carry on the mission of Jesus until he returns. Today's text includes four of these bullet list items that the twelve and us need to consider, prioritize, and internalize. The first item that he tells them, the first item on the list of the things we need to think about is teaching about temptation. As a matter of fact, as he teaches about temptation, he says, temptation is going to come to all of us, but let me give you three branches from that one tree that we know as temptation. Jesus is fully aware that the twelve have failed in various respects and that they will continue to fall and get back up again. But at the same time, he never excuses these failures as trivial. Central to this section, the first four verses is the beginning of verse 3 where Jesus says, when it comes to temptation, pay attention to yourselves. And then within this paragraph, he, he suggests three specific areas that we need to pay attention to ourselves. The first is that our actions towards the sins of others starts with self-awareness and reflection. Remember, Jesus has already told them, before you even think about removing a splinter from your brother's eye, make sure you take the log out of your own eye. Self-awareness, self-reflection. Paul will instruct in 2 Corinthians to examine yourselves and to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. But after we examine ourselves concerning our temptation, I notice that Jesus never absolves any other person of their accountability for their sin. But he also warns about what I've read about and I've heard called contributory negligence. Yes, that person is responsible for their sins, but... We need to make sure that our behaviors do not contribute towards their sin. Before I became your pastor, I was leading a custodian crew, and our, our building had five different stairwells that each went from the basement to the second floor, and we were expected every day to mop every stair, which meant putting out the wet floor signs in each hallway waiting for it to dry, and then, kept, then picking up the signs. And sometimes, 
it, it, it seemed absurd to put out all the signs every single night and to collect them every single night. But there's none of us that wanted to be the one who created a slick condition that would contribute to another person's fall. And Jesus says when it comes to temptation and when it comes to sin, watch yourselves to make sure that you don't contribute to their fall. Finally, Jesus says that if another person sins, we must be eager to forgive. I don't know about you, but my experience with the people of God's family, it seems that sometimes we are too quick to jump straight to 1 Corinthians 5.11 or to Titus 3.10. Because those verses tell us to have nothing to do with the person who sins. And sometimes we jump too quick to, I don't want to have anything to do with that person. We jump straight to the end of Matthew 18.17 when we treat him as a pagan or as a tax collector. But I ask you, How do we treat the pagans? Do we avoid them? We treat them in such a way that we can win them to the gospel. We don't avoid them. We give intentional love in their direction so that they would respond to the truth. So rather than writing off The brother who has sinned, what we need to do is give extra love in their direction so that they would respond to the truth. So how do we reconcile with Jesus saying, you need to forgive a person seven times even in one day? Or how do we reconcile with forgiving a person 70 times seven times? With Titus 3.10 that says, after you've warned him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him. See, we jump to the have nothing to do with him rather than the forgive and forgive and forgive. I think there's an important difference, and that is that 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 2, and Titus 3 are all dealing with public sins. When a person sins publicly against the body so that the witness of Christ is jeopardized, we need to be careful about allowing that person's misbehaviors to characterize what it means to be a Christ one. So we need to be eager to forgive when they sin against me. And we as the body need to take it serious when people sin publicly in such a way that would hamper or damage the witness of Christ. See, we jump so quickly to the avoid a brother. We want to withhold forgiveness because we want them to hurt the same way that we hurt. And and I've been hurt by people and it's hard to forgive. They say, I'm sorry. and, and, And I think, yeah, yeah, we'll see how sorry you really are. But it's not unique to me, it's, but someone has said that withholding forgiveness from another person or refusing to make peace with that other person is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person gets sick. And Jesus says, if they repent seven times, you need to forgive them seven times a day. 
In other words, in these first four verses, I see two big lessons. The first is, don't contribute to sin. Do not be guilty of contributory negligence so that another person slips in their Christian walk. And secondly, just as important, don't refuse to forgive when repentance is present. Now, the twelve knew how difficult this was going to be. They know how difficult it is to forgive someone who has wronged them. So they, they, they say, God, increase our faith. There's no way we can do this without more faith. And so what Jesus tells them that is they need to expand their expectation. They need to expect God to do mighty things. As a matter of fact, he, he tells two very quick verses, but it's for us a picture of having either, they wanted a big faith. And Jesus says, no, you only need a small amount of faith as long as that faith is connected to a big God. See, they admitted they weren't up to the task. But Jesus says, this small amount of faith if it's connected to a big God, can move the black mulberry tree. The black mulberry tree is a tree with a very complicated system of roots that allows that tree to live up to 600 years. Jesus says, if you have just this much faith in a great big God, that 600-year-old tree can be thrown into the pond. When I think about a tree that's old and established being thrown into the pond. I wonder, have any of you ever tried to remove a bush or a root ball of a tree? If you've ever tried to remove the roots of a bush or a tree, you need a lot of power and you need a strong chain rope or strap to pull on it. Now, I have a friend his real name is Sean, and he's told this story in a sermon, so I'm not telling any tales. Sean, by his own admission, is sometimes more adventurous than smart. And Sean worked in the building trades, and uh, he wanted a truck. But since he had just graduated from Bible college, he was recently married. They couldn't afford to buy Sean a truck. And uh, all they could afford was a little hatchback with a four-cylinder engine. Well, Sean took the back seat out of his Dodge Omni, and he treated that little four-banger just like it were a truck. Back to my story about removing bushes. Since Sean and Christy could not afford to hire a landscaper to remove the hedge from the front of their house he decided to take a toe strap and to attach it to the back of his truck to pull the hedge out of the front of their property. Needless to say, a Dodge Omni is not built to pull bushes out of the ground. See, Sean didn't need a stronger strap. He needed a more powerful source. The disciples did not need increased faith. Jesus said the strap is not the problem. Even if you have a small one-inch strap, 
that will be sufficient if it's connected to the right source. A heavy tow chain attached to a weak source is not going to get the job done. But a reasonable strap connected to God's power is more than enough to move a 600-year-old tree. So the question is, is your faith attached to a Dodge Omni or is your faith attached to an omniscient, omnipotent God? Jesus says, make sure you're attached to the right source. And once Jesus has expanded their view of God, then he challenges the disciples to fulfill their participation. Jesus uses a a story that doesn't really translate well into our modern work ethic. Since the servant-master relationship is difficult for our modern ears, I try to imagine a husband and wife in this story. And it took my mind to a very dark place. Wife's been working in the garden. Husband comes home. How many of them says, uh, go cook me something to eat. And, and, and make sure you make yourself presentable when you serve it to me. Then you can eat what's left over. Not going to uh, play out well. Because I'm sure this textbook was burnt long before I started school. But perhaps you've heard about the 1950s home economics text that read, Ladies... Have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time. This is a way of letting him know that you have been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospect of a good meal is part of the warm welcome that is needed. Amen? Men, you are wise not to say anything. (laughs) Because that text went on to say, ladies, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so that you are refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh looking. He has just been with a lot of work-weary people. Be a little gay, 1950s wording, and a little more interesting. Because his boring day may need a lift. Well, out of time considerations, I'll just give you the highlights of the rest of the list. In 1950s, the the expectation was clear away the clutter, prepare the children, minimize all the noise, don't greet your husband with problems or complaints, make him comfortable, listen to him. And this last one is genius. Make the evening his. He is special. Never complain that he does not take you out to dinner or to other pleasant entertainment. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure, his need to unwind and relax. (laughs) Remember that you relaxed all day waiting on his return. (laughs) Now it's his turn to enjoy what you enjoyed. Like I said, that book has been burnt long ago because it doesn't relate to the lives that we live. Because if your home looks like that, or if you ever served in the military as an enlisted man who interacted with a drill instructor or with officers, you probably get what Jesus is saying here. There's 
a role that needs to be performed. And each person needs to perform his role. See, verse 9 makes perfect sense in those settings. But in our world, a world where burger flippers who can't even count change want $15 an hour, the idea that we've only done what was our duty seems like madness. In a world where athletes who are under contract refuse to come to training camp because they want a different contract, we have only done what was our duty. Seems unreasonable. See, contentment comes when we do not think too highly of ourselves. Jesus is saying here that we are not the master. He is. And just as the prodigal son humbly considered it a privilege to be taken back into his father's estate as a hired hand, we must remember what an honor it is even to be in his kingdom and in his service. And remember, there's only room in the hive for one ruler. And it's not me. See, we have a job to do, and we must do it. And for Christians, that job is to make disciples. And so from the direct teaching from Jesus to his disciples, his last lesson is one that they learn by watching him interact with others. And the takeaway of this last story is that there is a need for cultivating our appreciation. It's the story of the lepers, and leprosy was a class of many different skin diseases. And ever since Leviticus 13, it was assigned to the priest to evaluate if the condition appeared contagious or not. That's why Jesus told them to go show themselves to the priest. Because they needed to self-isolate, something we've learned about in the last two years, They stood at a distance when they called out to Jesus. And Jesus finds himself actually in a rather sketchy place. He's in the area between Galilee, which was a blue-collar district, and Samaria, an area that high society avoided. And in this area between Galilee and Samaria, these men have one big strike against them. They are lepers. And a second strike is that at least one of them is a Samaritan. But Jesus calls all ten of them to act in faith. Jesus says, right now, you're covered with leprosy. Go show yourself to the priest, and by the time you get to the priest, you won't be wasting their time, you will be clean. Somewhere between leaving Jesus and acting in faith, they were cleansed of their blisters. Didn't you enjoy that song that the girls led us after communion? We can celebrate that our sin is gone because what Jesus has done. And it is good for us to recall what has happened and who has done it. And that's exactly what this Samaritan does in verse 15. 
He looks at himself and he sees what has happened to him and he realizes Jesus is the cause of it all. Verse 16, this leper falls at the feet of Jesus, which was a very clear violation of all of the quarantine rules. But Jesus has already shown in previous chapters that the work of God does not often submit to the protocols of man. Jesus looks at this leper at his feet and he says, Man, you've you've done right. But where, where are the other nine? Because in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, we read about that there is a a cleansing and a healing, which is a different word that Luke uses here in verse 19. See, ten of them were cleansed of their blisters, but one of them was saved. He was made well. And we all know the difference between being not sick and feeling great. Well, the nine were made not sick. But the one who cultivated appreciation was made well. As a matter of fact, Daryl Bach writes, When the blessings of life are seen as a result of God's grace, it makes us into gentler, more grateful people. He goes on to say that such an attitude prevents us from assessing life in terms of what we are owed, an attitude that can sow seeds of anger and bitterness. If we stop like the one and count our blessings as a gracious gift from the hand of God. See, all four of these instructions this morning are relevant to success in becoming godly disciples. But I also noticed that each is essential in a harmonious family. Because families that are short in any of these areas, forgiveness, hope, duty, appreciation, those become pretty unpleasant places to live. And a huge part of being the disciple that God intends is for us to learn to relate well, not only within our biological family, but within this family, within his family, the family of God. I I, I guess I may have family on my mind because I'm going to spend time in the next two weeks with my extended family. But in preparing for this message, I thought it was appropriate for us to celebrate this family as all who have been adopted into God's family. See, if you are not sure that you are a part of God's family, just tell me after the service. I will, I'll be moving around and you can find me. Tell me that you want to be sure that you are in God's family and I will partner you with someone who can show you from God's word how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your sins are forgiven and you're a part of God's family. You as a church have done well to humor me since I came three years ago. I started a new tradition that when we do communion, we remember the blood and the body of Christ that unite us as a family, and we celebrate that by joining hands and singing. 
Now, I realize that uh, we have several guests who are with us today, and if social distancing is still something that you take very serious, there's no shame in stepping back into keeping your space. No, no shame at all. But for those who are comfortable, I invite you to stand at this time to join hands with those who are to your left and to your right.